Welcome back to Talk Green to Me. I'm Nasreen. And I'm Manali. Today we're doing something a little bit different than our usual Talk Green to Me episode. We are going to talk about policy. So for our listeners, pretty much every episode at the end of it, we talk about what kind of policies and things can be implemented in order to you know, have better governing of recycling or better control over different kinds of waste streams and things like that. So this episode is going to be kind of in line with those things more so than talking about just recycling of a specific material. Before we get into the bulk of the episode, let's do some introductions. First, we have Campbell. Hi, my name is Campbell Colley. I am a PhD student at Oregon State University, and I research microplastic behavior in surface waters to better mitigate and understand toxicity to aquatic organisms and co-transport of more harmful contaminants. And we also have Levi joining us. I'm Levi Hellman. I'm a PhD candidate at Arizona State University. I study how well-intentioned environmental interventions can sometimes have negative unintended consequences. And so my research right now focuses on how solutions to resolve plastic pollution may require using other materials. And I look at the impact of doing that. And of course, you already know Nisreen. I am a grad student from Georgia Tech, and my research looks at how to use cellulose and polyelectrolytes to make paper making more sustainable. And Manali. So I recently graduated from Georgia Tech. Uh, I was working on uh, surface modified cellulose nanocrystals for pharmaceutical applications. So Levi Campbell and I did the science outside the lab nanotechnology and policy program this summer. And do one of you want to explain what that was? A brief amount of background is that it's a NSF funded program. Uh, There's a bunch of universities that are involved in nanotechnology research. And one of those universities, Arizona State University, happens to be my home institution, received money to also train people in basically the social implications of science and technology. And really the purpose of it is to take formally in the pre-pandemic times, take a group of graduate students from all across the country uh, that are mostly scientists, take them to Washington, D.C., introduce them to policymakers, get them to talk a little bit about how science and policy work together. And from that, the goal is to then have these students, uh, just a handful of students, have a really deep and detailed understanding of what happens in policy in D.C. Unfortunately, you guys did this program during COVID. So tell me a little bit more about that. This past year, the program was run online because of the pandemic and the difficulty in meeting people in person which had the benefit of people being able to come from multiple different places to join us. We had a wide array of policymakers talk to us. Uh, We had a great group of scientists with us to ask questions to these people. And really what what we'll talk about today is kind of what we got out of it. I don't know if Campbell or Serena, if you want to add anything else to that. I think that sums it up pretty well. Okay, so what led you all to do this Science Outside the Lab policy program? I wanted to do this because I honestly knew so little about policy and scientific policy. There was just so many things I didn't know that I wanted to know that I thought would be really relevant to what I was researching. I researched microplastics behavior in the environment that I just saw this as a really good opportunity to put myself kind of in a position like literally science outside the lab still using that scientific mindset, what I like to do, but literally outside the lab and learn something I've never experienced before. 
Yeah, I think for me, um, and as Manali had mentioned too, with our podcast, we interview a lot of different people in like waste management of different materials. It's always like, you know, the science and technology, they're working on that side, but there's only so much you can do if there isn't policy and if people aren't educated. So I kind of want to do this program to learn more about, you know, what can we actually do? Like, where does policy come in? You know, how can we take this a step further to make this actually a thing that people can access? So from the Science Outside the Lab program, what was one major takeaway? Can I start by saying my motivation for taking it? Yeah, absolutely. So I co-lead the Arizona Science Policy Network. I came into this with this experience that I sort of stumbled into and realized that like, I didn't really understand though how things worked federally. And I didn't really understand how things worked in general. I just kind of like ended up in this position. And so I didn't really feel like I had any formal educational experiences in it. I think one of the things that came to me with this overall experience was this idea that in order to make policy decisions around science, there's this kind of phenomenon where what we fund is what gets measured scientifically. And in order to make policy, we need those measurements uh, because policy requires having standards and policy requires having metrics of what's acceptable and unacceptable. And on one hand, it's a really complex system. And I think that my eyes were opened up to that in a way that I hadn't experienced before. But on the other hand, I think there's something that to me is exciting about that because it means if you know what levers to pull and you know what, who to speak to and how to speak to them, there's opportunities for the work that we do in the, to make tangible impacts in important ways. For me, um, something, again, this is, Science Outside the Lab was the first in-depth look at science and policy that I've experienced, but, and something I knew before that money is everything in it, but the fact that policy, and we, Nazreen and I had talked about this before, but policy is not just ideas, it's an action plan and how that is funded and who you communicate with. A lot of times, especially with scientific policy, is as important, if not more, than the science itself. So that was something I like kind of thought about, but talking to all these speakers, something that really like hit home because if this, it could be the most amazing scientific achievement, but if people don't understand it, if it's not communicated properly, if it doesn't get the funding, if it doesn't reach the people it needs to help, then it kind of then just falls apart. So Nazreen, we've talked about policy a little bit in the past, but what was your kind of takeaway from this experience? I really didn't understand how broad policy was. And I didn't realize how much I didn't know until the first exercise they gave us was like, write how science relates to all the different branches of the government. And I was just like, oh man, I'm like having to think back to history from like sixth grade. I was like, do I actually even know this? (laughs) We were talking to, listening to one of the House Science Committee members and speaking to, you know, we can do the science, but if we can't get to someone who really knows how to implement that in a meaningful way, like how much can we really do? And so one of the House Science Committee members, I guess, basically said that, you know, you can come to me and tell me what an issue is. And like, for the first time, I was like, oh, I can actually just literally try to find you and tell you about an issue and that might turn into legislation. I felt a little bit more useful, a little bit more powerful, but it was like, 
you kind of have to know who to speak to as well. So coming at this from a scientific mindset, what were some of the things that you found really different from the policy standpoint? I know like a lot of us here in various ways are interested in sustainability and a couple of us have uh, research backgrounds in plastics. And it's like, we might know that plastic pollution is a really, really big issue, but knowing that doesn't necessarily mean that there's easy policies that you could implement to make change. And I think that for me, the way that I approach the problems as a scientist is a lot of times trying to identify and quantify the problem, but that doesn't necessarily make for useful science in what policy needs about how to develop a solution. And I guess the way that I look at the science as a scientist and the way that then I was seeing people look at science as a policymaker were very different. Uh, I also see that a lot in my field, for example, a lot in environmental engineering, specifically water science and water research, there's a lot of projects and initiatives to go to different countries and engineer better water systems. The science can be amazing, but that might not be the best solution. The best solutions are usually when you have like anthropologists and sociologists involved and you see what communities, what they're already working with. And then the science that you have, how that connects with that is the way to get a better result. Because if you just have this amazing water purification device, but no one really knows how to use it, it doesn't really work with anything they have, then it's not a good one. And I, I see this similar thing with uh, plastics and plastic solutions and exactly how you were seeing, like looking at those kinds of problems. I think one of the, the things and the speakers that stuck out to me was when we talked to the EPA and they were telling us about the I think the Toxic Substance Control Act, it was basically like we were asking about nanotech and it just seemed like they took all nanotech because it's currently developing and just kind of grandfathered it into that current act um, and that they cared more about like what a material is. So for example, like titanium dioxide. And so like nanotech titanium dioxide was considered the same as just any normal titanium dioxide. But as a scientists and researchers, we know that when things get to the nanoscale, even if it's the same chemical, it acts really differently. And so like that was kind of surprising to me that there isn't that consideration of the size because that changes how it's going to act and how that could potentially harm people. And so like that for me was like, a point where I'm like, oh, the policy here isn't really reflective of what we know about the science. I think both science and both policy rely on standardization. So science needs to standardize something or at least define it so it can be, its properties can be described, it can be quantified, it can be measured. And policy needs the same thing to think about acceptable limits or if something is harmful, but how to figure out what is defined as what and what level of impact is acceptable versus harmful are all really complicated questions that don't necessarily have clean answers. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's always so interesting when you see these kinds of like broad categories in science. Microplastics are defined as plastics that are under five millimeters in diameter. That's it. That is so many things and like we were saying before, in different policies, they take these different standards and these really broad categories, and then they apply, you know, the same kind of policy and rules and legislation about them. But 
on our side, it's just where these lines are drawn that I am super interested in. And I think um, allows for like a lot of opportunity for PhD students, people interested in policy to work with. There was another uh, example from the EPA. I think it was, they were trying to figure out the acceptable limit of a compound that could be in maybe it was water. If, if anybody remembers the details, let me know. But one of the things that stuck out to me was there was basically two different standards that could have been used and one would have been more strict than the other one. And the Trump administration, they decided to use the less strict of these standards. And it is interesting to me because it's a, a very clear example of just those lines can be drawn in different places. I do you remember that example? I don't know. Was it PFAs? Yeah, I think I think it was PFAS. Uh, I, that was interesting because it seemed like the speaker was kind of getting pretty mad about it because we know that it is harmful to people in some aspect. Wouldn't the right thing be to choose the more strict of the limit? In the EPA conversation, we're talking about industry as well. Like mm. then people who are making products and things that are necessary, then they get more limited as well. And so like, how do you balance that? Yeah, that's always so interesting. It seems like it's a battle between, you know, these harmful contaminants, but so that's kind of battling people's health. It's like, what's the best of both worlds where it like minimizes damage to both sides, which really frustrates me, but that's just seemingly how it works right now. You know, like you said, microplastics are anything that's under, you know, five millimeters, but those could be so many different things. And then you see all these, you know, ocean cleanup type policies and and stuff like that. But it's like, from a materials perspective, you know, those could be all these different types of plastics and some are definitely more harmful than others. But a lot of these companies who want to take this policy and, and move forward with it, they do the cleanup and they'll collect all these plastics. And then is it more harmful to try and make something that blends all these things together? Would it be better to separate them? Like there's just so many things that aren't considered when you're making these like broad stroke or generalizations that I think are just true for a lot of the policies that are out there. I'm trying to think of a response for that, but... Yeah, you, know, you you guys obviously like did a lot more of this stuff than I did, but just, you know it's it's interesting from the kind of materials perspective and from like what we things that we think about as a podcast. It's just like, well, if you don't separate and you create a blend with all these ocean plastics, is that better later on? Or you're not going to be able to recycle that, so is it worse for the environment overall or something? Just briefly, because this has to do a lot with my research during those ocean cleanups and my advisor went to the beach, went to the coast with his family, found a bunch of plastics, brought it back to our lab. We may do some stuff with them, but also the pathways these plastics are going that get to the ocean, all the stops along the way in these different like rivers, groundwaters, uh, sometimes like in the air, what are they picking up along the way? And how does that change the plastic? Uh, It's not just a somewhat degraded plastic cup that you may find in the ocean. It can fragment into, you know, thousands upon thousands of different nanoplastics that can absorb to other contaminants that can make them travel faster to the ocean that changes their chemical surface structure that it's, it's not just plastic. Plastic is just the most broad word in the world. At some point, there like is a line you have to draw. You can't have for each polymer type specific legislation. 
you know, where's that line? <laughs> right. And that's also something, you know, I think that Trina and I, when we first did our, our plastics episode, we learned so much about like the numbering of the plastics was so arbitrary yeah. and the ones that get collected or whatever, and all the number seven plastics and things like that. Um, I think speaking to, speaking to that, where Manali was saying, like, you know, we can go and collect some of the microplastics and then turn it into, into something else. And that is well-intentioned. And both Manali and I do a lot of cellulose research. And so for better or worse, we tend to promote cellulose because it's this natural material and tend to pr- promote paper because it's naturally derived, but just because that's the case, it's not necessarily always better in all the cases. And so I think, I know Levi, we were talking um, before about how, when is paper better than plastic? And like, is it just good intention? How does that all play out? So I was curious how your perspective on that with your research. Yeah. So one of the things that I study is how some of these natural materials, if we have to have paper, or maybe sometimes it's the biodegradable plastics, we have to grow them. And so there's a consequence associated with that. And one of the things that I think is interesting is not necessarily that means that they're bad. Like as you're saying, like, it's not that paper is bad and paper is probably better in a lot of different, uh, in a lot of different applications, but it's a matter of what we, uh, and I think this is where it gets back to the policy aspect that is so interesting is what is uh, better kind of depends on the goals that we're going for. And if so, if our goal is to reduce plastic pollution, which is a great goal to have, then it might be better to replace all plastic with paper as soon as possible. If our goal, though, is to have overall environmental sustainability, it's probably better to maybe have paper in some applications, but not only use paper. And so I think it's the thing that I'm interested in thinking about, especially now with with this policy experience is, is not necessarily like what's ultimately better or what's ultimately worse, but how do we go about thinking about what's better and what are we using to determine what's better or what's worse? What are our criteria? I think also it's like really interesting as science is like constantly changing. We're always getting new methods, new information. And it's like, because we're also evolving with the knowledge that we have and we can gain. I guess the example is with with COVID. There was so much no one knew. And so information was just coming on the fly that people had to try to make policies on the fly as they're learning more about the science. And so like I think about like, you know, if we have a new nanomaterial, if we have different microplastics or new biodegradable materials, they're well-intentioned but like we might still not know exactly how they behave and how the limits that we set based on what we know at the time changes and how it'll affect things in the future. Yeah, who were we talking to uh, during this program when uh, we had a discussion about when like new papers, new research comes out on something they've already categorized before and they kind of briefly talked about the process of like going back looking at it, seeing what needs to be updated. But it sounded like it didn't happen like a lot, a lot. NIOSH maybe? Mm, It may have been NIOSH. But it's good to know that people are keeping track of these things. Yes. So what was one really memorable speaker for you guys and what did you learn? 
One for me was definitely Dr. Thompson, Samantha Thompson. Uh, she was a curator at science and technology at the National Air Space Museum. I didn't even know that was an opportunity. The, the whole museum system and with like scientists having your PhD. Uh, and it was just really cool to talk to because she is, was very passionate about what she does. I Some of the research I've done is related to engineering education and science education and outreach. And yeah, it was just really cool to talk to her and about the kind of like museum system. One of my speakers that was the most memorable for me, we talked to a member of the House Science Committee staff, Sarah Barber. And I think for me, the interesting thing there was one, I didn't realize that how much of the work that happens in Congress is through the staff. And they're the ones that are really the, the nuts and bolts of what goes on there. And I think for me, seeing kind of behind the curtain about what does it actually mean for a bill to be made or for a vote to be taken or for somebody to take research and try to make legislation out of it. And to see that happening and the thought process that goes into it was really eye-opening for me. Those were, they were all really great. I think the um, Samantha Thompson from Air and Space Museum, I thought that was so interesting because I, I love museums, but it was also like, you know, you're just talking about the science. And to me, that shouldn't be political, but she kind of was telling us that it, it really is. It is political. They have to be very careful about what they say and how they say it, which was fascinating to me. And she's speaking about how they're going to have um, a climate change exhibit. And like, depending on which administration is there at the time, limits what they can and can't say about it, which was just, I think, kind of sad. Because yeah. You, yeah, you I mean, yeah, it, it matters where they get their money from to keep them going, unfortunately. That part to me was really interesting too. When you go into a museum and you see the the so and the named after so and so wing of the museum, it's because they gave so much money to the museum, and as a result, they have a little bit of influence as to what gets said in there. Hearing somebody navigate that challenge of figuring out how to say something in a way that is both true, but also I don't want to say appeasing, but appeasing the people that are kind of in charge was a really interesting conversation. I think also like museums for the most part seem to be when they're when they're free or when they're low low charge accessible to a broader public and lots of different age groups and I think part of it is like how do you bring some of that education to different areas of the country that don't have access to that and I think that was something that we were talking about and that was like a theme that went on throughout the program. I think one of the other parts of the experience that was really interesting for me was hearing the way that these different people involved in policy and people involved in science navigated the challenge of how to do this equitably and justly. And, you know, I can speak from personal experience as a person who grew up in a really rural area that you don't have the same access to, you know, museums or access to maybe the legislators or policymakers that you would have, you know, should I have grown up in a more urban area or a more uh, affluent area? And I think for me, kind of hearing people think about that was just it made me feel good because I realized that like oh yeah like there are there are differences in the way that we access and have access to resources that also is like another dimension of this challenge of how to make how to make policy equitably. Yeah 
Yeah, I think actually I remember you had asked someone a question or you prefaced your question by like saying that it took you like an hour to get to school every day in high school. Yeah, so I I went to I grew up in a in a small county in the southwestern part of Virginia, so basically the the Appalachian geographic region. And I went to a a, a STEM school in the mornings that was yeah, about an hour and 15 minutes away from my house. Every morning I would drive there and drive back to my county school where I take the rest of my classes, uh, then drive back home. And back home, I didn't have and still don't have a cell phone service. And so I remember I, I submitted my application for grad school. I had to drive down to the town library. It's like a little one room library. And that's where I submitted my grad school applications because uh, I was home at the time. Wow, that's amazing. That is commitment. Yeah. yeah props to you. How do you think what you've learned informs your research or your interests? I, I have a lot of feelings uh, about this one. I think the biggest thing is, uh, Campbell, I don't know if this is your experience. My undergrad degree was environmental science. And I felt a lot of what I was learning about was how to measure and how to quantify environmental problems and show that they exist, which is absolutely, absolutely necessary. But there wasn't as much focus on, well, what do we actually do about it? And I think one of the reasons that I wanted to go to grad school is I had this naive idea that if I could just know more, then I would be able to solve all of these problems. I think, I think there's definitely like this, this if I know more, I can, I can change the world. And I didn't know what I was changing. I didn't really know what the world was either. I just knew that that's kind of this feeling that I had. And this kind of naive idea that if I, if I could figure out what the problem was, then I could probably identify the solution. And I think one of the things that science outside the lab helped showed me is that it's a little bit more complicated than that. It's not just a question about what we know, but also a question of what we think is valuable. You know, so back to the question about like plastics has kind of been a touch point for a lot of this conversation. Somebody might think that the jobs that are made in the plastics industry are just more valuable than the environment. And they might think that I'm going to disagree with them, but (laughs) we're not really disagreeing about if plastic pollution is a problem. We're disagreeing about how much we value that problem versus what it would cost to remedy or mitigate that problem. And so I think for me, I see that complexity, I guess, as opportunity and opportunity to think more critically about the research that I'm doing but also with a strong sense of, but I want the research that I'm doing to be, to meet the needs of, of policy. And so I think how it relates to my own work is I don't want to only say, you know, here's what's wrong, but I want to think about, uh, make my research a little bit more attuned to a question of, but how can we do things better? And I think that's a pretty big, at least for me, mindset shift in how I think about what research is and what sustainability looks like and what environmental challenges look like. What I really thought a lot about after this program and something I want to incorporate with what I do in my research, uh, something that I think a lot of uh, engineering, specifically uh, students of all levels uh, could benefit from, is to effectively communicate that and know who you need to communicate that to. Our audience is not just going to be the people that study what we do. Hopefully our audiences a lot of the time are people we want to uh, help are using science, make their lives better. And this program really allowed me to really start looking at better ways to communicate information to people succinctly for their own benefit. 
I've had a similar experience with that in, in my undergrad uh, in material science and both in grad school. We talk a lot about using sustainable materials and making new products out of something that is bio-derived rather than plastic. And it always kind of is just like, okay, we made this thing. Now that means this is more sustainable. And it's, that's kind of like the loop. It's like, okay, I did the science. Here it is the end. Yeah, Uh, But that's, that's not the case in reality. It's just like, if someone doesn't know why a product is more sustainable, then like, they're not going to care. They're going to continue to act in the same way that they always are. So I think really have to be able to communicate what it is you're doing and why that matters to people and why people should care, both the general public, but the people who make the policies as well. I think that's a really good point, Nesrin. I think that's something that I also thought about. It's a little bit more, the, the intersection between science and policy is a little bit more complicated, at least, at least I thought originally. And uh, there was definitely a moment where I was like learning these things. Where I was like, well, this is just, well, how do, how do we know anything? How, what, how do we make any of these decisions? What's, what's the point in doing any of it? It's just too much and it's too complicated. But I think the other thing that I realized is that that also means that there's opportunity to realize that uh, you know this is the kind of research that we need right now, or actually like the disagreement isn't about the science, it's about the policy, or you know here's how the policy could be made in accordance with the research. And I think that that part kind of was a takeaway that was exciting for me, and like you mentioned at the beginning, empowering. Yes, 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 yes. What was something do you think that maybe you wish we talked about more during this program? That's a, that's a really good question. I think we, in the course of like talking to a lot of different speakers, um, for me, like I know, I noticed that like the diversity, equity, and inclusion question came up a lot and mm-hmm. a lot of the answers were unsatisfying to me. Yeah. It felt like people were aware, but they weren't really we're not at, they were not at the point of making actual useful solutions. And I think that needs to be figured out as soon as possible. It's affecting people right now. just say the buzzword. Be like, oh, we're aware this exists. Be like, okay, but that next step. Exactly. We, we are asking you directly, policymakers. <laughs> How about you, Levi? What do you think? You know, I think the one voice that we didn't hear from that much was actual elected policymakers. Like we didn't hear from anyone that held an elected position. And sometimes elected officials are a little bit slippery in their answers because of the way that the public holds, uh, you know, their kind of future in their hands. But I also think that it would have been informative to at least kind of see how they think about these issues. And if that's, you know, different than the people that work for them or different than the agencies that they oversee yeah, that would have been really interesting. And I mean, a slippery answer is still an answer in some respect. Yeah. And, and at the time we were going through the program, there was big uh, science funding bills and different versions of these science mm-hmm. funding bills going through the House and the Senate. And I think hearing how the advocates talked about each of those bills would have been really, really interesting to see kind of what their priorities look like and how they're being characterized. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think it was really interesting that that was happening while we were doing the program because we were getting to hear a little bit of like different perspectives and different takes on 
those policies that were developing, um, which is interesting because I guess when we spoke to the House staff, they had a counter bill to the one that the Senate was um, writing. And I think the Senate one actually was the one that ended up um, passing, right? I, I think so, or at least a modified version of the Senate bill. Do you guys have any closing remarks? I guess like parting words uh, for people listening, um, whatever level of education, science, whatever, there are ways for you to get involved and, you know, make positive change. Absolutely. And Campbell, do you want to shout out your podcast? Oh, sure. It's very different from this podcast, but me and my best friend, our quarantine project, we miss playing instruments and talking about musicals together. So we came up with a podcast, Boozicals, where we maybe have a few too many drinks and talk about musicals and try to raise money for music education. Um, you can find us wherever podcasts are found or follow us on our Instagram at Boozicals. That's awesome. Thanks. Well, yeah, thank you so much for joining me, Campbell and Levi. This was a lot of fun. And hopefully maybe we'll have you guys back on talking more about your research. Thank you so much. It was a great time. This episode was edited and produced by Manali Banerjee and Nasreen Khan. Music is by Shang Young. Please follow us on Instagram at TGTM Podcast. And you can email any questions to talkgreentomepodcast at gmail.com.